You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We are a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. From the Hebrew Bible, the book of Leviticus, chapter 18. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not follow their statutes. My ordinances you shall observe, and my statutes you shall keep, following them. I am the Lord your God. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Lois. I wish I had time. I'm listening to Acts after I've prepared my sermon and uh, just overwhelmed with the story. I wish that I had time to preach on Acts 10 today. Because And maybe someday I'll write a book uh, because there's so much in that story. Uh, this is the birth of the church and the revelation to Peter, who was the rock of the church. Those of you who know a little bit about Catholic history, right? The founder of the church who has this mystical vision of God saying, what I have called clean, don't call profane. And then he goes out and then starts preaching to all kinds of people. And everybody is overwhelmed with this new message, Right? Don't call profane what I have called clean. Um, and uh, so Lois uh, read just now uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. I'm going to read uh, what I would call almost a forbidden passage. Uh, this is Leviticus 18 verses, verse 22. And then it's, there's an echo, verse 13 from chapter 20. Uh, so 18 and... 20, um, and you'll notice in my sermon, I spent a lot of time in chapter 19 of Leviticus. So we're going to, I don't know if anybody has ever been to church and actually heard Leviticus preached. I have, and I'll tell you, it was not very pleasant. Um, hopefully I'll do a better job, but this is, this is the forbidden passage of Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is to'eba. Can I, everybody here say the word to'eba? That's a Hebrew word. This is uh, chapter 20, Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed to'eba. Everybody say to'eba. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So uh, now that I've read passages I swore to myself I would never read in public, I'm going to uh, reflect on them a little bit with you. What do Old McDonald's Farm, Mixed Crop Agriculture, your favorite baseball jersey, and a close shave have in common? <laughs> well, they're all banned by the book of Leviticus, of course. Among the whole host of forbidden things that Leviticus forbids, it says that multiple species of cattle cannot graze together. Where well, there goes the oink oink and the bark bark and the moo moo, right? <laughs> That a variety of crops cannot graze together. All of you hippies who are doing polyculture farming, right? You, you realize that the Bible says you can't do that. Um, you can't wear clothes made of more than one fabric. So uh, go burn that jersey of yours, Sam, right? 
Um, and you cannot shave or cut your hair. I guess my beard will come in fashion. <laughs> uh, these prohibitions, they seem absurd to us today, even humorous. But Leviticus is not so much of a humorous book. And it's not just a humorous book feared with farcical laws. It's also a site of serious debate about the role of Scripture and its abuses. It's in the context of Leviticus where we find the prohibitions that aim to outline what is and is not acceptable human sexual behavior. It's here in this very passage that we just read this morning where we find some of the most abusive language that gets used to justify violence in God's name, which is why we said it in Hebrew. Our goal this morning is to take what I want to call a deep dive, where deep diving into treasure, you know, looking for treasure, right? And imagine going down in the bottom and then discovering hidden treasure. We're going to take a deep dive into Leviticus. And that means we want to do more at this point than just point out how absurd most of the Levitical prohibitions are. We want to disarm scripturally based violence. So what I mean by this deep dive approach is I want to do what we've been doing in this series up until now, which is I want us to challenge ourselves to find, if we can, within the depths of the biblical story, a specifically Levit the Levitical portion of the story, this part of the story we're reading, is there something here that's beautiful, something that's redeeming, something that's life-giving? I believe that when we dig deep, when we dive deep, that what we find in Leviticus is a call by God to establish a community and a culture based on freedom, on justice, on wholeness, on belonging, on radical inclusion. Now, you may wonder how Leviticus, this, the very book that provides such abusive language, can be read as a call for justice and belonging. Well, rather than skirt around the issue, let's take our deep dive. Let's go directly in. Now, I'm not one to care too much about what more normal people call profane language. I'm not going to call you out if you choose to use a four-letter word in my presence. Um, and if I use it, then don't tell anybody. But there are some words I refuse to use, and I will certainly call you out if you use them in my name. Um, use them in my presence. These are the words that I would say you might find if there was such a thing in the lexicon of bullies. So let me start by quoting from the philosopher Richard Rorty in a debate about the use of religion in the public square. Rorty says, I agree with the ACLU that most hate speech, hate speech laws are probably impossible to reconcile with the First Amendment. But when we witness the use of abusive biblical language to call people names and to claim that their sexuality is unbiblical, then the absence of such laws should not prevent us from responding to them. How dare you make your religious convictions an excuse for inflicting suffering on your fellow citizens? In other words, I believe we need to redefine how we understand profanity. What language is and is not acceptable to God? The language in this passage... Leviticus 18.22 and its echo 20.13 I have trouble with I believe God has trouble with it and I don't believe God has trouble with most of the words that we say are profane 
It's the English word most commonly used to translate the Hebrew word to'eba. The English word for the Hebrew to'eba is one of those words on my forbidden words list. Out of respect for the people that I love dearly who have had this word used against them, I refuse to say it, especially from the pulpit. Well, let me just say that the word itself has been used in ways that actually illustrate its meaning. To use some of the synonyms for it, this word has been used in ways I believe God finds detestable, loathsome, obscene, disgraceful. And if you still can't get this morning what the forbidden word is, it starts with the letter A and rhymes with the word nomination. This word, toeba, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. It has an air about it that suggests that sexual minorities are less than human. It's a word that brings up thoughts of disgust and revulsion. And for all intents and purposes, it turns human beings into monsters. This is what social psychologists call infrahumanization. Infrahumanization. It's a tacitly held belief that you have in-groups and out-groups and that the out-group is somehow less human. That its members, they don't share the same rights and emotions as the in-group does. If we're going to do the work of becoming an inclusive community, I would say we take this notion of infrahumanization seriously. As the British rap artist Akala put it, the moment human beings become non-human, it's a mandate for murder. Having provided pastoral care and comforting LGBTQ loved ones, I know how these feelings of being less than human can create for an individual's uh, their own self of say, self-hatred and a deep personal pain. I remember sitting next to someone that I love deeply and hearing them say to me, I just want to die. I hate myself. And wishing that I could express my deep belief that God, when God looks at them, God has an extreme delight in them. But I remember thinking in my mind that the shame that they were experiencing had been so much reinforced by the church and by the culture around them that nothing I could say, possibly nothing I could ever do, would change how they felt. But still, I felt this yearning of the heart of God deep within me. So I looked at them and I said, don't you know you are God's beloved and there's nothing you can ever do to change that? This use of the Bible to abuse others, it makes me want to give up Christianity altogether. I mean, deep inside me, I find the struggle between my love for Jesus and the church and my inability to identify with so much of what fits under the banner of Christianity. So what do I do? Matthew Vines, the author of God and the Gay Christian, he wrote the following on his blog to explain why he left college to spend two years studying the Bible. Could it be true, he said, could it really be that the holiest of books, which contains some of the most beautiful writings and inspiring stories known to humanity, along with the unparalleled teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, also happens to require the emotional and spiritual destruction of sexual minorities? For any of us who have learned to love the Jesus who called the little children to him, whose highest law was love, and who was a fierce defender of the downtrodden and the oppressed, this simply did not seem possible. Well, yes, Matthew Vines, it is true. Unfortunately, the Bible contains all kinds of things. 
some good, some not so good. It's a complicated book. But our goal this morning is to disarm this passage, to uncover if there's any treasure there at all, to take a deep dive and uncover in the context to see if there's anything that we can find that's beautiful, that's redeeming, that's life-giving. Is there something about this specific prohibition in Leviticus that better helps us live out the teachings of Jesus? Is there something about this passage that helps us along the way in our quest to become more like Jesus, more like him whose highest law was love and who was a fierce defender of the downtrodden and the outcast? I believe there is. But to get there, you have to understand the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. One, two, three. In Genesis, God creates people and the world. God puts the people in the world. And by the time you get to Exodus, you see that this people of God have become enslaved. And then God sets them free, right? Everybody understands the story, right? Take a big swath picture, right? God creates people and then by Exodus, you've got slavery. And then God sets the people free and then you find in Leviticus, God begins to instruct them, this newly freed people, about their religious practices. He begins to, God begins to shape them into the kind of people that God is dreaming for them to be. See where Leviticus fits in? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is complicated and it's hard to understand. And it's possibly maybe one of the most complicated books with numbers in the whole Bible. And it's part of the passages of Scripture inside of it are this, this place where Jewish and Christian Scripture is most used to justify violence, especially against homosexuals. And it's primarily concerned with worship practices, and it mixes ceremonial and moral concerns and its legal codes in ways that sometimes scholars even have trouble parsing out. It contains strict dietary codes, listing what's good for food and what's not. Remember what we just read from Acts. It lays out a whole host of activity that's deemed forbidden. Almost everyone, though, agrees that most of the guidelines in Leviticus were for a specific community in its own historical context, in its own social location. And I'm certainly sympathetic with those Christians who are like Matthew Vines who decide that the only way to deal with this is to dismiss it altogether. They deal with these clobber passages, 1822 and 2013, by taking them and saying, well, they're in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So it's no longer binding for Christians. As the reasoning goes, Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law and the New Testament teaches that Christians should live out their new covenant rather than the old one. That's convenient. But this is a reasoning based on the Hebrew scriptures. Notice that Lois and I didn't call it the Old Testament. It's based on a reasoning and an understanding of the Hebrew scriptures that I don't buy into and I hope you don't either. But either way, it still doesn't get at the question that we're asking this morning. Namely, is there some treasure here? Is there some way that this passage can help us to become better followers of Jesus? They help us to be kinder, more loving, more fulfilled human beings. For us, the Levitical codes simply seem antiquated, but in several places, Leviticus actually surprisingly includes guidelines for behavior that we would hear echoed in the teachings of Jesus later. 
For instance, Leviticus 19 is filled with this beautiful passages like, Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many of us have probably forgotten that that came from Leviticus. Here, in Leviticus 19, right between chapter 18 and chapter 20, it tells us that feeding the poor and the stranger are part of what it means to be the community of God. It tells us to tell the truth about our neighbors, not to oppress them, to act with justice towards everyone. And then beginning with verse 33, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you once were foreigners in Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. I wish most of the literalists would read that passage too. But here in this passage, in this, in this verse, I think is a bit of the secret. This phrase that is there at the end, I think here's where our buried treasure is. Found over and over in Leviticus, there's this, when we take a deep dive and we look at the broader picture and then we start to parse out the pieces, we find hints at the truth of the heart of the call of God for us. I am Yahweh, it says, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Be holy as I am holy. It's repeated over and over. I am Yahweh who rescued you from Egypt. Be holy. Now we may not be comfortable with the language of holiness, And maybe we need to leave that work for another day. But the reasoning is still clear. And it's repeated throughout the book of Leviticus. I freed you from Egypt, God says. So don't ever do to others what they did to you. The treasure, see, at the heart of the story, underneath all the provisions and the prohibitions and all the stuff that we think might be humorous, is the Levitical promise of Jubilee. It's a promise of justice reset, for rest and restoration. In Leviticus 25, the community of the faithful was charged to let the earth rest every seven years. And then every 49 years, the world is supposed to reset. All the debts are canceled, slaves are set free, everyone's given freedom to eat all the food from the fields. And in the end of the story about Jubilee in Leviticus 25, guess what it says? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you a land and to be your God. It's in this context that I think, and only in this context, that the word to'eba makes any sense. Rather than a word that suggests disgust, it's used to express betrayal. A betrayal of the calling of the people of God. A calling that God had given them. For example, the use of the word toeba in the context of Deuteronomy 18 says, When you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the practices of the nations around you, because they are toeba. In every other instance where the word toeba is used, it suggests that the main problem is that the people of Israel have now forsaken their sacred calling and began doing what everybody else does. Now, before you get the wrong impression, it's not because there's something inherently wrong with the people around them. It's not just that the practices would make them like everyone else. It's that they would make them just like the people that God had delivered them from. I set you free from Egypt, God says. So don't do what the other people did to you. I believe that the treasure we're uncovering here is that we're entering into a new season of the church. 
we're witnessing something that most of us have failed to recognize. Is that we're beginning to have the freedom to discover sacred, hidden treasure at the heart of the gospel. God's radical welcome. It's the truth of what, I'm, that what it means to call ourselves God's beloved. We're finding the freedom to know ourselves deeply. We're hearing the voice of God speaking over us, saying, I delight in you. In this season that we're in, we're learning to speak these same truths to each other. And that requires us to scrutinize the language that we use. Maybe change our understanding of what profanity is. Remember, God says, don't call profane what I have called holy, right? Change the language that we use. Especially the language that we use in church. We need to begin confessing regularly that there are, are no outcasts to God. That there is no one that will ever enter this space or that we will encounter in the world that will be less God's beloved than we are. And when we let the gospel of God's radical welcome redefine for us who and what is sacred, then we begin to declare our collective belovedness in our behavior, in our language, and in our attitude. We begin to practice it with such intensity that it becomes central to how we see ourselves. It begins to influence how people in the world around us see themselves. We need to respond to the profanity of the world with the simple truth of the gospel of God's radical welcome. We need to declare to each other, you are loved, you belong. And to speak or act in any other way is toeba. It's to do the very thing that creates the situation that God had freed us from. It's to have forgotten who we truly are. And that means that we need to be careful not to imitate the exclusivity, the abusiveness, the oppression, the one-uppedness of the world around us. A world competing for love and belonging. See, the world around us is filled with people who believe that there's a limited amount of God's love to go around. But let it be our bold declaration that we're all God's beloved. That there's enough of God's love for everyone. So may God establish in us a renewed sense of who we are. That's my prayer. That God can establish in us a new community, a culture, centered around practices of love and belonging. To do anything else would mean we've forgotten who we are. Don't be like Egypt. Be who God created you to be. Amen.